A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the arts and culture app. Created by Bloomberg Philanthropies, Bloomberg Connects lets you access museums, galleries and cultural spaces around the world on demand. Download the app to access digital guides and explore a variety of content. Hello, I'm Ben Luke and welcome to A Brush With, the podcast from the art newspaper in which I talk to artists about their influences from writers to musicians and of course other artists and the cultural experiences that have shaped their lives and work. And in this episode, it's A Brush With, Analia Saban, who examines, unpacks and plays with the medium of painting. She explores its materiality, its iconography and its history, reflecting on the origin and hue of colour pigments and the properties of media, the weave of canvas the nature of brushwork, the conventions of depiction and more. Her approach is consistent with strategies of conceptual art, yet it's abundantly physical and visual. Those conceptual strategies derive from her education at the University of California, Los Angeles, or UCLA. There, as you'll hear in our conversation, she enrolled on the celebrated New Genre course, on which she was taught by a cluster of hugely influential West Coast artists, including Catherine Opie, Charles Ray, Chris Bird and Paul McCarthy, and above all, John Baldessari, her mentor up until his death in 2020. And Leah was born in Buenos Aires in Argentina in 1980 and came to the US initially to study film at Loyola University in New Orleans before switching to art there. It was in her final year at UCLA that she made her first mature work, teasing out the nature of painting. In one piece, she unraveled the threads of a canvas of a found flower painting into a ball of string, leaving half of the painting intact. Soon, she created a giant ball of a hundred paintings that had been similarly unraveled, including more pictures she picked up from thrift stores and junk shops, as well as those by her fellow students. She pushed this emphasis on paintings as a form of textile to extremes, even knitting a scarf from the yarn of one painting. Analia then turned her attention to the properties of forms of paint. Because acrylic paint is plastic, Analia began using it without a substrate, effectively turning the brush marks into isolated elements that could be assembled into collages or even relief sculptures. She began to focus on marks within historic drawings and paintings and reconfiguring them. She reflected on the structure of composition, recreating drawings by famous artists from Leonardo to Agnes Martin as separate acrylic components and allowing gravity to take its effect, resulting in a series she called Collapsed Drawings. Analia took this unpacking of the elements of painting and blurring of the boundaries of artistic disciplines further with a series of works called Acrylic in Canvas, where she would fill primed canvas bags with paint, which then seeped through the weave or breaks in the canvas. In each body of work, she stretches the idea to its limits in the pronounced tension between order and chaos and between the logical and the absurd. She's made textile paintings in which she weaves with threads made from acrylic paint. She also began casting the paint with moulds, going to extraordinary lengths to make a plastic carrier bag and a black rubbish bag in which she placed blank canvases. And in trough flesh in 2012, she hung a loose expanse of canvas from its wooden stretcher, whose width matched her height, and filled it with her weight in flesh-coloured oil paint. It was an unlikely self-portrait, and while her art is tautly conceptual, it's also profoundly bodily. 
It's also deeply engaged with technology in its making and in its subject matter. She's long used a laser cutter controlled by computer software to make precise drawings onto diverse materials. She also makes automated jacquard tapestries with a knowing nod to their history in which the loom's movements were dictated by punch cards, effectively an early form of computation to mechanise weaving. The tapestries often relate to a subject that's fascinated her for more than a decade, the physical components of computers. Motherboards, microchips, graphics cards, microprocessors, circuit boards and recently cooling fans are transformed in her work. The tapestries featuring the computer technologies are often woven with materials that allude to electrical conduction like copper, which is also a nod to experimental modernist textiles. In her pleated ink paintings, meanwhile, she uses the laser cutter to create the precise pattern of a computer chip on paper and presses it onto a panel covered in ink. Over many months, the ink dries and eventually represents the chip design as a strange landscape of creases and folds, frozen in liquid form. This is exemplary of the way Analia unites systems with the handmade and embraces chance as a key component of her process. Before making each series, it's as if she stands back and asks the most basic questions. What is painting or sculpture and why is it meaningful? As I mentioned, she initially studied film, so I began our conversation by asking her if that shift away from the camera was the impetus for what she's called her outsider perspective on art. Yeah, absolutely. I I was so confused. And to be honest, I still am. Right now I'm calling, you know, from the Getty Research Institute, which is this amazing library that I come to study very often. And, you know, it's like millions of books about art and all these resources going into art. And I'm like, I mean, what is this? You know, why do we have these places? You know, my husband is a doctor and he's like, you know, out there, like saving people from cancer and, you know, very difficult diseases. And I'm like, okay, that I get, you know, it's like, okay, like your life has a purpose. I mean, actually, like, it's funny when, you know, when COVID hit, because he was like the most essential worker, what like artists were like the least essential workers. <laughs> so like, you know, I am confused by it. And yet, like, I can't imagine a life without art. During COVID, you know, we were like accessing art through, you know, the computer monitor, like it really wasn't the same. I mean, it it felt very sad. I mean, like, you, and not just art. I mean, like, you couldn't go to a concert, you know, and like, you couldn't walk into a museum and have this like shared experience. So I'm trying to understand, like, what is it? Why are we talking about it? Like, why do we study it? Why is there a history? Why is there a value attached to it? Why do we pay like a hundred million dollars or more for a painting? So I come to it like from a very outside confused perspective and to be honest I haven't like reached any answers <laughs> but that's what keeps the work going isn't it if you if you know what I mean it's, exactly. it's like you're still asking those questions and that sort of propels the work to a certain degree yeah and I feel like you know the more you study the more you realize like you just have no clue um, so yeah it's interesting that you talk about the COVID period and how lost we all felt looking at screens to a certain degree in that time because it seems to me that there's an insistence on your work on the physical even if you might be using technological processes there's always this return and this insistence on the sort of unparalleled experience of physicality of art 
I feel like right now there are like two big forces pulling in opposite directions. On the one hand, we have computers and like technology and code, which is basically what like turning like our reality into a binary system of zeros and ones and just numbers, right? We're like obsessed with quantifying nature, quantifying diseases. So quantifying relationships or how, whether we like each other or not, like, so everything has a number attached to it. And it's just a world of numbers. And, and then that leads into artificial intelligence and so on. And then at the same time, we have the completely opposite force, which is I want my coffee to be like, I want the grains to be like handpicked and I want someone to like grind it by hand. And I want like the little, you know, latte art. And, you know, when you get that like coffee with a little flower like you kind of want to like I really feel like I want to cry like I have this moment where like I'm just thanking the barista I'm like thank you like you, know, you have this like it's it's almost this like spiritual moment and we need this right like we need these experiences so I want to really like talk about this moment in my work and the work I'm doing now it's like it's all talking about artificial intelligence, but like I'm doing it like out of beeswax, you know, it's all like wax based and, and very material. I really think as long as we have a body, we will need materials to relate to. But then also there's this lovely kind of dialogue in your work between the hand and then these mechanized processes, whether they're sort of more ancient processes like looms or if it's a laser cutter and it seems to me that tension is really productive in terms of your work there's very much your presence but there's also the, the machines are making quite a lot of it i love to find like tools that like those forces are like they start in the tool itself you know so like for instance the jacquard loom it's basically which is the loom i'm using the most half of the loom is computer based and it allows me to do like a very difficult pattern because it's all connected each thread, and it's about like 2,056 threads, can lift individually from the other. And like, so it can make a very complex pattern and that's connected to the computer. But then at the same time, you're weaving by hand. So I feel like I have like those forces starting with the tool itself. With the laser cutter, it's like super advanced technology. It's basically like, you know, I think of it as like a pair of scissors that can like cut with extreme precision. And we have like, you know, it's the machine that's connected to an air compressor that's connected to like air filtration to there are more machines attached to it. But like, it's really a lot to run it. And, but then at the same time, I can put like a piece of beeswax and it's basically a beam of fire, you know, like laser, it's basically fire. I like to find tools that like have those forces within it. And then those forces kind of like translate into the work pretty organically. Tell me about time, because of course, those processes are all involved in time. There's a lot of precision, as you say, in the laser cutting, for instance, and, and in terms of the files that inform the laser cutting and so on. The weaving obviously is a time-based process. Then there's also the sort of direct references to time in your work. There's the pocket watches. And then there's these wonderful and slightly whimsical things, which are 5,000 years of blue. So you've got lapis lazuli and, and the Tesla door. So tell me about time, because it seems to me that, again, that's like a kind of theme, that's a kind of consistent thread running through the work. 
I love the idea of time. I feel like time is one thing because after some time I started thinking that like, you know, a way to understand art could be how we relate to it, right? And I feel like art is on a different timeline, but it's affected by the same forces than we are. Let's say you're making a painting and it's wet. I think of it as like the wet body, like the blood circulating. Then the work is finished and it's, you know, sometimes I think of like, our bodies, right? Like when it's finished, it's dead, right? Like when the blood dries, we die. When a painting is finished, it's like the paint dries, you know? And then, but then at the same time, it has all this parallelism. The work of art is aging. We need like to conserve it. And like, I'm fascinated by it. And there is also a reference, you know, like sometimes if they, you know, you can say, well, like in human, it's like dog years compared to human years. You know, it's like painting years compared to like human years. And I think it's, it's just really fascinating. And also like, you know, the choice of materials, like for instance, we use marble, you know, it's more like the eternal, right? Material, like that's what we use for tombstones. And then, you know, then you use it for like this very high art, monumental, you know, outdoor sculptures versus like more sensitive materials that really also deal with life and our experience of it. At the Getty Museum, so I was a resident for like a year and then they let me go into the conservation labs which I find it so fascinating. And it's like a hospital for art, right? So they have MRI machines, they have X-ray machines, they have, you know, these microscopes where like, you know, they pick up a little section of a painting and they can analyze it and see like all the different layers and they can kind of understand, you know, where that painting came from. They can see how old it is and, you know, all this like sample-based science. And, you know, it was just so interesting to see, like, you know, the parallelism, sometimes they use the same machines. And at the same time, they have this aging machine where, you know, they put like samples of materials and they expose it to like, you know, a lot of light. And then they have like a formula between what would be like in museum time versus in the machine. So maybe like an hour in the machine would be like two weeks or more in the museum environment. So I just think the issue of time is is endless and it's so fascinating and it affects both the art and humans. I've seen those wonderful things that you did where you sort of stacked the little swatches of the the conservators paint samples and you can tell from them whether a paint is synthetic or whether it was ground by hand and you sort of compressed that time into those canvases didn't you that where you you, you mounted these swatches effectively in sort of stacks. Sometimes I think that that's one of the reasons why, you know, people have talked about the death of painting like over and over again, but then it resuscitates, right? It's like, okay, it's over. We did the black square. There is nothing else. And then somebody else, you know, wakes up the next day and keeps painting, right? (laughs) It's not so easy to just like kill it. And one of the reasons I feel like it does resuscitate, it's because it's really like every day is a new material. Every day is like a new a new human painting it. But in terms of materials, I mean, this idea that you can excavate a painting and understand where that pigment came from, was it accessible or not? So like, for instance, blue was very hard to get. It was like the price of gold, basically. And they could only get it maybe from Afghanistan and Egypt, you know, like very limited resources. So you see early paintings having like very little blue. And if they have it, you know that they came, I mean, I don't remember all the details, but maybe they came through the Silk Road. And mm. and you can imagine that it took some time to get, well, like, you know, synthetic paintings after like the 1950s and 60s, it climbed like blue everywhere. And so I think it's so fascinating how like, 
if you take a little particle of one painting, of any painting from like a cave painting all the way to Yves Klein, all the way to a very contemporary artist, it gives you a reading of the whole planet and industry and globalization and the economy, transport, you know, just like what a human could do at the time. I love that about art. I think it's very powerful. And I think even though we don't think about it when we're looking at the work, I feel like our bodies relate to it. There is like an unconscious type of like dialogue between how we feel when we look at, you know, the Mona Lisa versus like something more contemporary. I think it's beyond like our rational understanding. That's one of my hypotheses about art and why in the end it's so powerful. And of course, you sort of imaged that in that wonderful piece called Trough, which is this canvas in which you've got your body weight in oil paint sort of sagging into the canvas haven't you so you sort of the body is really important isn't it even though that again there's you know you're using technology or you're referencing computer technology there's a seam again that runs through the work where the body is of paramount importance i'm thinking about the body more than ever in a way because you know with ai we're like almost grasping what like consciousness could potentially be or what like intelligence you know now that we see it like outside of our bodies i was reading a book and it was talking about how consciousness kind of got attached to humans at some point it got attached to the body right we all sense that separation between like body and soul like we don't understand it but we sense it right the hypothesis was like well you know at some point the body was there and the consciousness got attached to it so why couldn't consciousness get attached to like let's say an inorganic body right like a machine or whatever so i'm thinking about the body more than ever in my darkest moments i was reading a lot of Kristeva and like the abject and like that was like <laughs> tough times <laughs> but like I still think there is this body we we wear and we carry through life and it has tons of limitations and tons of opportunities and, and I think it, it is a moment for me to think about it. One of the things I'm aware of looking at those works like Trough and in fact across your work is that Yes, there's a sort of deconstruction of painting going on, but you talked about those sort of death of painting arguments. There's absolutely no sense in which you're undermining painting, I don't think. You're just examining it to a certain degree. That's really the idea. I see it more as a scientist that wants to like, you know, open it up and, you know, see the corpse and understand it. Like very early on, I I went to the University of Medicine in Buenos Aires and I just for fun, I asked them to let me go into an anatomy class just to see body parts. And, and I think it was like a very important experience that any art student who wants to like deal with these issues should experience at some time. I even like, I had a friend who worked at the funerary home and I really wanted to also like put my hand on a dead corpse and understand like, you know, the temperature difference. And as I said, this is my darkest existential uh, early times, but I still think they were like very influential in a once you understand that the dead body is very cold and then like your body is warm and you like really put like your hands on each body, then then you also understand that you're alive, right? So I feel like I need to see that and then like somehow bring that energy into my practice. Let's move on to the questions that we ask all our guests. Who was the first artist whose work you loved? 
So this is such a cliche, but I remember I was freshman year. I was actually studying film and then taking art classes as a minor. And I went to my art class and one of my professors mentioned the word Duchamp. You know, when like something traumatic happens in your life and you remember exactly what you were doing at that time, I was just finishing a sandwich when this happened, you know, like you have this like super clear memory and it, it's exactly what happened to me. Like I, I remember like we were sitting down, you know, in the classroom and it was like a computer lab type of classroom. And I just remember like the word coming out of his mouth and like, you know, he had all these books and he was like introducing me to his work. It was almost like traumatic. I probably think about the ready-made like every single day and like, but not just objects. I mean, I think it's more like about creativity and the idea that like we always start from something. Even when you go to the art store, you start from like ready-made paint. Even when you like make the paint yourself, like I make the paint myself with like beeswax and resin from trees. I start with this beeswax and and what does this ready-made material say? Right. So that's my artist, you know, Marcel Duchamp. I mean, I feel like it's it's he was really it was a life changing experience to learn all of his work. But one of the great things about Duchamp is that you can reinvent him for every thought, if you like. Yeah. And, and I really sense that in your work. Like, for instance, the most obvious connection to Duchamp might be the work with a sink. Yeah. But what you're doing is taking that ready made material and in making a painting of sorts from it. So this sink becomes a pigment, which is mixed with medium and goes onto a canvas. So it seems to me that that's crucial to Duchamp. For each artist, he can offer something new, even if it's with the same thought, if you know to I me. Mean. I mean, when you think about like identity now, right? Like, gender and the multiplicity of the self it just goes on and on and on and I can probably like look at artificial intelligence and memes and think of Duchamp you know so that whole aspect of him and um and the humor and the randomness the game of chess I think he was a bit of a prophet yeah it's interesting you mentioned humor there because it seems to me that there is a thread of humor running through your work but I think that's really difficult to get right in art, isn't it? It's probably the hardest thing to get right in art in some ways. It's very easy to do sincerity to a certain degree, but to do humour and sincerity at once is extremely difficult. Can you tell me something about, do you wrestle with that? I don't know what I would do without humour. You know, my mentor, and this is my mentor from, you know, when I was in university at UCLA, so from 2002 all the way until he died, Jean Baldessari, so almost 20 years a mentor, it's just I'm still struggling with with him not being around because I don't have like that person to like, you know, I'm not good at telling jokes. He was, he was brilliant. <laughs> I mean, it was just this thing that we could like look at something together and and we would get the joke, you know, we would like just be like, you know, that's funny or that's sarcastic or that's ironic. I mean, like to really like just see that something else. And it's been like just so hard not to have that person. I mean, like we really connected in such a profound way and it was all about humour. I mean, that piece where he's singing the Solar Wit instructions, that's actually laugh out loud funny, right? And so and so there are different degrees of humour that one can access within the concept of art. And And he was brilliant at that. He was brilliant at making some sort of profound statement by using the lightest touch humour in some ways. There is this like, you know, piece where he made this billboard in Austria and it's a smiley face that's like kind of decorated. That's a Nazi. And like, so it's basically has a mustache and, you know, like the black hair, but it's really like a yellow smiley face. 
I mean, I can't stop thinking about it. Like since, since the first time I saw it, like I was like a billboard on the street, like just a smiley face, you know, turning it into this like emoji icon that was like so funny and so dark. Mm. And I'm like, I haven't met anyone else that can do that. Mm. I mean, I think he was also like more contemporary prophet in that sense. Yeah, absolutely. Other than Duchamp, which historical artist do you turn to the most today? I think it goes by what I'm trying to do, right? I remember like we were doing like some type of viewing of prints at LACMA and we had like all these prints out and, you know, we could like see them in the flesh, which was, you know, it's always such a treat. And like we went through like, you know, artists I love and, you know, Solewit and more like we are looking at more contemporary works from all the print shops in LA, like Gemini and like, mm. I mean, beautiful prints of every kind. It was really like a big show. And then they have like two little pieces by Rembrandt. <laughs> and it's really funny, but there is nothing else. I mean, like you can just have, you know, like piles and piles of prints and two little tiny pieces by Rembrandt. And you look at like, the line quality and the etching and the emotion that goes into this line. And, you know, another cliche in a way, but like another prophet. I mean, like, I don't know in terms of line quality and transferring like the gesture and the emotion. I mean, it's really remarkable. And I think if you saw them even without names attached to it, if you just see this print and that print, and you don't even know who made it, but you really connect to the line quality, it's all there. It's an extraordinary level of control. I'm always just utterly amazed by those tiny prints that he, he's able to describe a figure, a face or whatever with such unbelievable precision. It's almost impossible with the human hand to do that. And that's that sort of miraculous power that it has, right? We make all these like giant works right now. Sometimes I think about it. I'm like, where is all this contemporary, including my work? Like, where is this all going to go? Like, you know, one day it will be like in the dumpster of like contemporary art. And then like you look at this like tiny, extremely humble print. It's only one color etching and it just makes you cry. I mean, because it's all there. I wanted to talk to you about some of the works you've made directly in response to historic art. So there was that series called Collapsed Drawings that you made. You can talk us through that process. There's a reverence, but an irreverence at the same time. So some of the kind of most enormously important figures in the history of art, so Titian and Guaccino and, and Leonardo even. But the way that you did it was to sort of look very, very carefully at the way that they drew, basically. It was really interesting. So basically I would like take a drawing and scan it in the computer. And then with my laser cutter, because that's how I got into laser cutting. If I wanted to cut the lines on my own, I would always have the gesture of my hand and the scissors. So I wanted to have a very precise way to follow exactly the gesture of like each line and each artist. So I cut all the lines away from the drawing. And then I had these piles of lines, only lines which in a way they are like sculptures, right? When you can hold one line, like one gesture by Kandinsky or like, you know, a pile of little dots by Agnes Martin or something, you know, it's just, you're kind of seeing the drawing on a different way. From a very naive perspective, I was like, why are the lines just floating in a drawing? Like what happens if you add gravity to a drawing? Like why, you know, like what is this about that we're like hanging art on the wall and then like there are like all these lines. There's something about like weird about it because we live in such a gravity-based existence, right? So I'm like, how is this attaching to the paper? 
how is like the ink being absorbed by the paper. Extremely naive, but I allow myself to go into that like as if I was an alien coming to this planet and like you just don't get it. It's that what is art again, isn't it? It's, it's really, it's going into the absolute granular detail of what art is, yeah. I think it's fascinating. You're like, oh, okay, so somebody makes, a, you know, a little scribble on something and then it has more meaning and, you know, like what does it really mean? So all the lines were like kind of collapsed in the frame, inside the frame of the drawing and basically I was just trying to understand it more I mean it really allowed me to also understand gesture and drawing more because Mm. and Ellsworth Kelly sometimes you know he can do like this beautiful drawing like just one line and he has all these like crazy like one line drawings versus you know someone yeah like Rembrandt who's like using the line in a completely different way or etching or like Agnes Marty, as I said, just these little, little Mm. dots, you know, but like it also creates this like emotional reaction. Like why do we have an emotional reaction to a grid or like a drawing? Like why do we react to it? So, and I also, to be honest, you know, I had these moments in life. I mean, I was close to like this Israeli embassy in Argentina in 92 that collapsed. And I think like there have been like these moments in life where like I really felt like from this collapse, you always rebuild, like you always rebuild from the ashes. And I think that's something that if something deconstructs itself as traumatic as it can be, like it also, you learn so much from it like because you have to put the pieces back together and I think a lot of my work and you know my existence since I was 12 and I experienced that and other moments like that either like the collapse from something exterior or the collapse from something interior but like a lot of just you know this life is also about coming back you know and I think we all have our version of that. Indeed I wanted to ask you about the drapery works because Again, there's a sense in which you're looking at art history and in a way it's both a homage to those extraordinary works in which drapery is represented in marble, but it's a way of saying, how can we rethink it? Tell us more about those. I'm just fascinated by like these things that we're obsessed with, right? Like you look at our art history and I'm like, you know, why do we have thousands of works about drapery? I mean, it's just something that like, you know, we set up these goals and this is based on culture and tradition and, you know, it's great. Okay, so we really wanted to make sure that marble looked like fabric. And, you know, for like hundreds of years, we worked on that and there is nothing wrong with it. Like, I mean, I'm, I I just like to point that out, you know, like that we have dedicated ourselves to make marble look, look like fabric and there is something very beautiful in it. But we could have chosen something else to focus on, you know, and, and I, I just think it's so interesting these patterns and and then I thought well you know what if it's my turn to drape marble sadly I don't have the skills to carve the marble like artist in the renaissance so okay so what can I do so then you know I took a chisel and I just like and a sledgehammer and I broke the marble and I put it like I draped it on top of this steel structure I was like okay this is my version and it was also really kind of cool to like you know turn something like so flat as like a slab of marble into something that drapes on top of these sawhorses and it is what it is. I just think it's so interesting because when you think of art, you're like, oh, you're going to do whatever you want. Like you're going to study art and you will like do anything that comes to your mind. But then we're so based in tradition. So I think I just want to like bring that out patterns and, you know, what, what should we think about, I guess. 
And I wanted to talk about the Albers because I know you've, again, you've made direct reference to Joseph. He was one of the collapsed drawings, for instance. I don't know if you've actually made a very direct reference to Annie Albers, but it, I see a lot of Annie in your work, and particularly where you're using copper thread, for instance. Tell me, do you consciously engage with, with her as well as Joseph? It's not so conscious, but I have read books by her and like, you know, her notebooks. And I think also like, you know, the fact that they were always like in an academic environment and like she was kind of carving her own space. People ask me a lot, I'm like, are you a feminist? I mean, like, do you support this or that? To me, like my way of being radical is to be a woman and like just showing up to my studio every day. I mean, like, I think that in itself, you know, and then, and then I want to be part of that big picture, the same that, you know, she was trying to find her way and I couldn't have like a normal career, even have a family without like this artist, you know, this female artist that came before me and like, you know, they really carved the path for us. So I met an artist the other day, an amazing artist, you know, like a very early like video and technology artist. And, and, you know, she was asking me about whether like, you know, I had kids. I told her, yeah, I have two kids. I said, like, do you have kids? And I was like, there wasn't an option for us, you know, like, so I think it's like really interesting. She was working in an academic environment and she was, she just said, you know, if we wanted to be part of the big picture and the big dialogue, we couldn't walk away ever, you know, and I think it's that similar story. And I think of that a lot. A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the arts and culture app. The free app offers access to more than 240 cultural organisations through a single download, with new guides being added regularly. Among the most recent additions to the app are the Rubin Museum of Art in New York, the Pinacoteca Agnelli in Turin, and the Photographer's Gallery in London. Among the other guides on Bloomberg Connects are several museums and galleries in the US where Analia Saban has shown her work, including the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles, the Museum of Modern Art in New York, and the Clark Institute in Williamstown, Massachusetts. If you download the app, you'll find that, among much else, the Guide to the Clark has sections on its collection, its 140-acre grounds, and on its exhibitions. Among the summer 2023 shows is Edvard Munch Trembling Earth, exploring the Norwegian artist's profound engagement with nature. In in-depth audio features, curators describe the keyworks and the major themes of the exhibition. To explore digital guides to all the partnering institutions, download the app today. It's available from the App Store and Google Play, and you can keep up to date by following Bloomberg Connects on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Which contemporary artists do you most admire? I think a lot about like, you know, when I was 19 and I went to New York for the first time and I actually like decided to be an artist on that trip. I was coming from Argentina, like... We had a lot of film and literature. We didn't have a lot of art because it was after the dictatorship. Mm -hmm. All the artists were in exile. So I didn't have a lot of exposure to contemporary art growing up at all, I would say. But I was 19. I went to New York and after seeing like MoMA and the Whitney and the Guggenheim, and I was like, I have no idea how you make a living as an artist. I had no clue about anything, but I was like, this is where I want to be. And it was just like, coming home. I mean, it was very weird because I really had no clue what I was getting myself into. So I went to the Strand bookstore and there was this like used section, which was amazing because you could get like all these books that were like super cheap and I could actually afford art books. It was just like an exciting moment that I was even like, not only that I could access culture by walking into the museum and I really felt that that was the soul of the city, like to me were those institutions 
But also I could like go to the bookstore and actually buy the books because they were beautiful and they weren't that expensive because they were these used books. And I bought an Amshun Pike book because I think that connection to film, like it made mm. a lot of sense to me. I got a Barbara Kruger book. It's the one that says like, you know, the body is my battlefield. Yeah. And then I got more books about like Marshall McLuhan and, you know, more like that, like media type of theory. And, but I think of that, I mean, I think about those artists and there was a show called Open Ends at MoMA that featured Rachel Whiteread and Janine Anthony. Like, I had no idea. I mean, this was like the first time I saw these works without knowing anything, but like, I mean, they spoke to me so loudly and sometimes I... Yeah, I wish I could go back to those moments, but now you know you always see you always see the work with all the knowledge you have about them. But like there was this like just like the fire went up. It's like I found my church, you know, like that's that's it. I found the light. That's so great. What do you have pinned to your studio wall? Do you have a lot around you? I don't have a lot around me. Actually, the studio is very much a blank wall. First of all, like if I pin out sketches or things like that, they almost die to me. Like, you know, the the minute they're on any type of printed form or anything, like I don't see a point that, you know, like I don't make the work. So I don't ever do that. And then in terms of references, I feel like I'm so full of references that I don't want to commit to anything. So I'm very like psycho about it. Like there is pretty much nothing. I do have a little picture of Monica Spruth holding my son when he was a baby. And, oh, that's nice. and that's just like very sweet. And it's very random. I don't know why that picture is there, but I, I, it does make me happy when I see it. Which museum or gallery do you visit most frequently? So LA, we're lucky. I feel like the three museums, it's like a holy trinity, like Mocha, Lacma and the Hammer, like they all, you know, they complement each other so well. So I visit them often, but I have to say the Getty Research Institute, it's really my happy place. And I I think next to the Smithsonian is like the largest art library in the world, as far as I understand it. It's just this place where like I try to come once a week, but I mainly come when like I need ideas and I can like isolate myself and just read about art and just a very special place. And I urge anyone who's serious about studying art to at least visit when you come to LA. It's really impressive. It's the same for me in London. The V&A library was this extraordinary source. And I would just go there, even if I wasn't working on an essay or whatever about a particular artist, I would just go because I just didn't know anything about X artist or whatever. Do you do that? Do you, will you literally turn up and think, OK, so I'm going to explore this today? Or will you go with a very programmatic approach to who you're going to look at? So I come for all different reasons. Sometimes I might bring my own book, you know, mm. because I just want the quiet space to, to read other times I'm looking at the topic. So I was looking a lot about, you know, the history of drawing and looking at Dürer and uh, and also like math and early geometry and, and all that stuff, perspective drawings and, you know, very historical books. Other times I come and I have very dry moments when like I'm not even working on a project. I'm like, okay, today I'm just going to study one artist. So an artist I really like, Rosemary Trockel, for mm. instance. So like I came one day and I asked for like every single book available. And it's being in the candy store, you know, like I come and I sit at my desk and I have like a huge pile of books with like every Rosemary Trockel book. And I'm like, wow, like I didn't remember that she did like ceramics. Her work is just so rich in all different directions. So I could like study one artist and then 
if I feel very motivated, I will like go into an archive. So that's, for instance, I studied the experiments in art and technology, which was a very interesting moment of, mm. you know, engineers collaborating with artists. So I studied that archive or going into something more like, you know, performance art. And I think that was also very cool to see, you know, what like Greenberg had for lunch or something, you know, <laughs> like to see like that little private notebooks and, and to realize that, you know, at the end of the day, it's all people, it's all people who like take vacation or they went to the dentist or <laughs> they had lunch or maybe, you know, it's not these like superhumans that just are enlightened for 24 hours. You know, looking at all these private notes and notebooks, it helped me a lot to realize, like, okay, like we're all humans. We're just coming up with ideas. We do our best, but, you know, people go through breakups and whatever, loss and happy moments and kids and job, you know, like whatever job issues and they still make the art. So hmm. that's what the Getty Research Institute has meant to me, a place where like I can go a little bit deeper and connect to artists like as human beings. So I don't think I would have had a career without this place. Oh, that's so nice. You're talking about really going deep into an artist's career and life. There's a wonderful video online, which I urge our listeners to watch, which is you talking about Ana Maria Malino, the fantastic Brazilian-based artist. She's an extraordinary figure. And it seemed to me that there was wonderful thing about that video is that there's a sense of knowledge, but also passion there. And that's a sort of luxury of the artist as well, to have a kind of intuition about another artist, but also to find that deep research and ally that to a kind of artist perception. Tell me about Ana Maria Malino and why you responded to her so deeply it's just clay right i mean like so you have these artists you know working with like bronze or marble like even photography buying chemicals or and then you have other artists you know that start with like this like bag of powder you know like it's dust i mean like you can probably make huge retrospective with like five bags of clay you know and and spend like fifty dollars <laughs> like, and still fire it and it will like you know, last forever. And it has all this, like the history of it. And, and I think in hard work, I mean, like it's the ground coffee beans, you know, it's really like, she's so human and you see like her fingerprints and like her holding on to it. And, or there is a picture of, you know, just about, it's kind of like a thread. It's a, it's a picture of, you know, her daughter and her mom. And then there's all have like a thread in their mouth and they're connected. And, so nice, and yeah. it's just like so simple. And, and yet, like, it just gets under your skin. I mean, it really speaks of humanity in such a humble and also very beautiful place. I mean, I think there's something always about Brazil that I love. I mean, when I think of Ernesto Neto, we show in the same gallery. And, like, when he talks about, when we go for lunch and he talks about, like, going into the Amazon and connecting with, you know, native people from the Amazon. And he starts, like, you know, hitting the table when we're, like, having lunch and, like, chanting and I start crying and I'm like, <laughs> you know, there is something about this like connection to life that like we really have to think about. And or when I go to Brazil in person or other places where like, you know, people like hold on to the mother earth and that's clay, right? I mean it's really like holding on to the mother earth. You can actually pick it up from the riverside. You don't even have to spend the five dollars now they think <laughs> about it, you know, like so I think that's um yeah, very poetic, very important work. Indeed. Which cultural experience changed the way you see the world? I think traveling has been very important. Understanding different cultures. There is one big moment I had when I visited the Museum of Israel in Jerusalem. I was having a tour 
you know, with one of the curators. So I grew up Jewish and I would consider that to be my identity, but I struggle with it. Like I'm one of those neurotic Jews, I guess, that's constantly questioning everything and feeling uneasy just about the concept of religion in general. So I was walking around the museum and they had this, I think it's like a James Rosenquist painting. And it's basically like a cheese and salami sandwich and it's like pop art. And then there is a beer next to it. And I was like, you know, I asked the curator, I was like, why is this painting here? And she's like, what do you mean? And I was like, it's cheese and salami. Like it's a pop painting. I get it, but it's cheese and salami. Like it's really not kosher. And I was like, <laughs> how do people see this? And then she looked at me and she's like, no, like this is a secular museum. You can like show whatever we want. And I was like, oh, I thought it was like a Jewish museum. And then like she went into it and she's like, no, like we really vouch for like, you know, a secular experience. And she really explained to me that like, you know, the museum of of Israel, it's like one of the very few institutions in, in Israel would be like totally secular. And then, and then I looked around and like, she was right. You know, you had kids from like Arabic schools and the Catholic schools and the Jewish schools, and they were like all under the same roof, like just talking about art and like, you know, and if the sandwich wasn't kosher, I was like, that would be a reason to discuss it. There was just no religion attached to anything. And, and it just made me so happy, you know, like to understand that art in that context could bring all these people together from like all these different cultures. And I know it's such a basic thing, but then it's not basic at all, you know, like the way the world is going. And it's, it's, I feel like we're all hiding in our own bubbles more and more. And after being there and like just understanding that art could really like bring all these people together. And it's the same thing that I experienced in New York on my first trip, you know, like I think I counted like something like 15 languages as I was walking through Times Square, you know, and I was like, this place is amazing. And I almost found it like a deeper meaning as the years went by. Everyone finds like their activism, you know, type of purpose. And I think mine has been really about like connecting, making art like a language beyond language, a language that doesn't need a translation that can like speak for itself. And then so anyone can connect with it and we can have this like shared world experience. And now it's just the one thing I want to focus on. And it's very important to me. You know, I married a German, like we make our kids learn Chinese and, you know, like, uh, so they speak Chinese, Spanish, German, English, like, you know, and I think it's just, the, it's very, very important to me to think about that. Which writers or poets do you return to? I mean, lately, I've just been so into AI books. Mm. And that's all I've been reading for like the last four years, I would say. <laughs> is it about the culture of AI as in the kind of problems of, of AI as much as the kind of technologies of AI? It's everything. I'm taking a little break because I was starting to feel a little depressed by it. Like, mm. I think they all start very positive and then like at the end, like they kind of go into a dark corner and I totally understand why people worry about it. But I read one book called AI Superpowers and I read it like five years ago when AI wasn't what it is now or what it will be in six months or a year from now. That one book really made me think a lot. I mean, it was the first book I read on the subject. It predicted, you know, that we're going to lose 
40% of jobs in like very short time frame. And it's happening right on your doorstep right now, right? It's happening in, in Hollywood and so Definitely. On, yeah. And because I read it such a long time ago, it's just been on my mind. And I was like talking to everyone about it. And people were like, really? Like, you know, and I was like, yeah, I read this book and it makes sense, you know? And like, I think even five years ago, it was hard to imagine. And now it's like hard not to imagine it. So there have been a few books like that. And I read a lot about, you know, I had, moments where I read a lot about psychology, psychoanalysis, mm. a lot of Winnicott, a lot of like, it really changes. But I think that's what we are, you know, we're humans, so we have different faces, different interests. And I, I allow myself to go into very random themes as well. Right. You mentioned Christeva earlier on in this sort of dark period where you're reading a lot of her work. But it seems to me that the abject does have a role in your work. Again, I'm going to go back to trough and this idea of, in essence, that's a self-portrait as a sort of trough of paint, you know, and that's a fundamentally abject thing. But also she talks about art as purifying the abject and how it's catharsis par excellence. And, and, and that sense in which, in a way, you can immerse yourself in the abject while delivering yourself from it to, to a certain degree. Did you find that art helped you do that? 100%. You know, I come from like most artists, you know, you, you have to somehow come from a troubled background. Uh, it's almost like a rite of passage. So I totally have my share of that. You know, my parents got divorced very early. There was a lot of like trouble. And then as I said, you know, growing up in Argentina, there were like all these things, you know, robberies and like moments of, you know, really existential moments and, and this um, terrorism attack in 92 that really like you know made me think a lot about how things can change from one moment to the other but you know as I said I feel like we all have our share of that and then I, I have been doing psychoanalysis for like 20 years and with you know a real psychoanalyst where you know he's based in Buenos Aires but when I go there it's like on the couch and it's every single day like the old days I love it and it has helped me a lot um, but I think like you said the abject has the other side of it and I, I honestly think you know people ask a lot about like motherhood and how it changed your work and like oh have you like you know I don't know made work about Mary Kelly or something about diapers or, or you know or have you like gone into kids books or themes or whatever and I haven't to be honest I still feel I am who I am but being pregnant with my first child, my oldest is is, uh, is my daughter. She's seven now. And, and just ha like seeing this beautiful child coming out of myself was the total opposite of the abject. And it was very healing. And I think it has informed my practice in that like it has kind of liberated me a little bit from this darkness that you are like by default when you start making art, you, you know, producing from the dark in a way it's easier, right? Because it's like Basquiat or something. You're just always exposing shit in your unconscious and it's fine. I mean, it is what it is, but sometimes it's also challenging to like be a little more healed and have a moment to create from a place of togetherness, I guess, a place where like you're a little more like mentally structured. And I think it's been good to like create from like a healthier place. And, and I think at some point, you know, if you don't go to the healthier place, you just die in your 30s, you know, like you at some point you have to get your shit together. Like you can only do the darkness for so long. So I think between having like, you know, these beautiful kids and and working on, you know, family relationship and then having, you know, my practice. Yeah, I would say that this life, you know, so far, knock on wood, it's been more on the healing path. 
Yeah, that's lovely. What music or other audio do you listen to while you're working? So I listen to the Con concert by Keith Jarrett. You know, my studio assistant is favorite play it again. Like they just kill me because I can <laughs> probably like listen to it every day and they start rolling their eyes like, please just play anything else. But I think he just gets the tone right of like, I think it's exactly that because I'm very sensitive to music. So if I listen to something a little darker, like more like expressive jazz that really takes you to a kind of emotion, then it, I really go with those emotions and I feel You know, I feel it and then it's not very productive. So, but I think the con concert is that like, it's that perfect in between of like negative and positive. It's the perfect balance. I read about it, like how like he wasn't feeling very well that day. I forgot there is a whole story and he wasn't going, to, he was going to cancel it or something. And then he still went and he played it. And it was like the best concert ever. I can't match it. I can't find anything better. I think it's really so, so great. It's amazing how many artists mention him, actually. He's, there's something really conducive to, in a way, supporting the creation of art that comes from listening to that music. It's extraordinary. Yeah, he's enlightened and, and I see him, you know, play live. And, uh, sadly, he's not playing anymore, but I've seen him play live many times and it was just you know, unforgettable, like best experience ever. Is there a particular discipline in your daily working life that you see as an essential ritual? So I've been playing with meditation like on and off for some time, but then this January, I finally took my TM class. So transcendental meditation. And I have to say, like, I never want to go back to life without it. I mean, this is how profound it's been. It's really a game changer. And I feel like these days, the stakes of life are almost too high. I have a hard time imagining all of our lives from now on without some type of meditation or spiritual practice. I mean, like things are just so complicated that like it's very hard to like have a normal psyche without it. So it's been great. So 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes in the afternoon. And I really like, I see the difference like on the days that for some reason I couldn't meditate. So that's been definitely a part of my routine. If you could live with just one work of art, what would it be? Probably a text painting by John Baldessari. That's nice. So you'd have him near you at all times. At all times. I mean, like, he's in my mind at all times. I don't know if he's still around as a spirit or something. I, I'm hoping he is. Uh, but it's like the Keith Jarrett. It's like the perfect tone of, you know, like deep and, and positive and negative. And it's just when the two poles of positive and negative find the light, right? Like, that's what you need for a light bulb to, to work. So that's exactly that moment. And lastly, what's art for? Survival. That's all I can say. I don't know if we can have a good experience without it. Analia, thank you so much. It was great. Thank you.
Analia Saban's Synthetic Self is at Spruth Margas and Tanya Banakdar Gallery in Los Angeles from the 15th of September to the 28th of October. Analia is also in several group exhibitions, Woven Histories, Textiles and Modern Abstraction at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, or LACMA, from the 17th of September to the 21st of January 2024. Eternal Medium, Seeing the World in Stone, also at LACMA until the 11th of February 2024. And Chosen Memories, Contemporary Latin American Art from the Patricia Phelps Cisneros Gift and Beyond, which is at the Museum of Modern Art in New York until the 9th of September. And that's it for this episode, and indeed for this series. Please subscribe to A Brush With wherever you're listening, and do give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Do also subscribe to our sister podcast, The Week in Art, a deep dive into the latest big art world stories, the top shows, and the key issues, which is back in September. And please also subscribe to The Art Newspaper at theartnewspaper.com. We're on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Tan Audio, and on Facebook, Instagram, and Threads. Production, editing, and sound design on A Brush With are by David Clack. And thanks also to Daniela Hathaway. A big thank you to Analia Saban. We'll be back in September. Bye for now. A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. Download Bloomberg Connects today and discover cultural institutions on demand. <laughs>